Uh, my name is Matt Ross, and I've served here at Grace uh, over the past two years as our uh, student ministry coordinator, and it's true. Uh, today is Catherine and I's last Sunday here with you all. Uh, here in the next, I know, that is, that's an inappropriate thing to say. Um, but over the next week, next Saturday, we're going to be filling up a moving van, and we're going to be headed north, about 250 miles, four hours away, and... Uh, and so with that, it's, it, like Peter said, it is, it's bittersweet. It's hard. Um, it's hard to say goodbye. It's hard to uh, embrace a new place like Cleveland, Ohio, which many of you have uh, reminded me that it snows a lot there, and I will become very much aware of that in, in the near future. But uh, before we get into our time together in the Word, I just wanted to take a moment to uh, just express my appreciation and my gratitude for you all as the church as well as for our leadership here uh, at Grace. So bear with me here. Um, Grace Fellowship will always be dear to both Catherine and I. Uh, I went through the bulk of my time as a seminary student right here at Grace. Uh, Catherine and I, we we actually met here at Grace. Uh, We were married at Grace. I like to tell people that the same aisle that she walked up to meet me uh, was the same aisle that she walked down to marry me. And people are like, man, that is so cheesy. But I'm like, you know what? I embrace that cheesiness. I, I love that story. Um, but we're very, very grateful. We're grateful to God for friends. We're grateful for pastors, for key individuals and in small groups who have uh, shaped us and influenced us as followers of Jesus. You've been our family, and so we're grateful. Thank you. Um, and while that is hard, uh, we, do, we do move forward, right, confidently, trusting, trusting God. We trust God with, with where we're going. So, so as we tra- transition from that, we're going to transition into the Psalms, right? The Psalms of, of lament, Psalms from a broken heart, right? So this is like one depressing thing, like into the next a little bit. But yeah, so Psalms, song, songs from a broken heart. So over the past couple of months, we as a church have been looking into the Psalms, And in particular, Psalms of Lament. It's been said of the Psalms that they work as kind of the anatomy of all parts of the human soul. That they express the full range of human emotions. And so when we find ourselves in the spot where we're asking uh, God, Lord, teach us how to pray. um, It's the Psalms that, that instruct us on who God is, his character, his nature, how we should worship, how we can pray, how to grieve, how to suffer, how to sing, and ultimately how to praise God regardless of our circumstance. That's what, that's what the, the book of Psalms literally means in the Hebrew. It means book of praises. The Psalms are poetry, right? And what the, what the Psalms do is they force us to slow down and to think deeply, causing truth to filter down into us as we rehearse over and over again beauty that truly grips us. And so as we turn to the Psalms once again, the the question that our text this morning is going to ask of us is this, do you ever feel alone? Do you ever feel alone? And I think if we're honest, I hope we can be honest, um, the striking answer to that question for most of us is that we actually do feel uh, alone more often than we'd like to admit. You see, mental health journals and research have suggested that although we live in a time when connection and communication means are at an all-time high, that loneliness is an increasing invisible epidemic. Some have described our age as the age of loneliness. 
And so while we live in a world where uh, social media uh, is at its all-time high and we have friends lists in the hundreds and thousands and we've got followers uh, out the waz, right, uh, we actually feel a great deal uh, of, of, of aloneness. We feel this sense of, of abandonment. And some of us here today, we, we come in here aching in loneliness uh, in our marriage, some of us feel that. We, we felt it before, and no doubt we, we will feel it again. Some of us, we, we feel it right now in singleness, right? We, we feel that ache of, of desiring uh, a spouse, and, and there's just no one there. Some of us feel betrayed by a friend or by a family member. And some of us, just from time to time, we carry this, this loneliness within us. Even though we're around friends and we're in good community, we just, we just have this ache within our souls that never seems to be satisfied. And in, and in this apparent darkness, right, in this, in this case, God's word to us shines and lights a path for us to begin to understand God's purposes in bringing us into the cave of distress and how we can appropriately respond to it uh, in the depths of it. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 142. Psalm 142. And while you're turning there, kind of the, the main idea, what we're going to see this morning, is that in the cave of loneliness and despair, that God is sufficient in himself to provide all that we need. So Psalm 142. And if you are physically able and willing, I'm going to ask that you would, you would stand with me to read this psalm. This is how it reads. A mascal of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And go ahead and be seated. Well, David was in the cave. And he was in the cave not because he was spelunking. He was in the cave not because he was cave diving. Right? David was in the cave because David was on the run. And why was he on the run? Well, the background of of this psalm is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and into chapter 22. And to kind of provide the quick overview for you, uh, what's happening there in those chapters is that David has just been anointed by the prophet Samuel uh, to be king. And although Saul is currently king, um, his favor has shifted from Saul to David, uh, the son of Jesse, the young shepherd boy. And in the providence of God, God leads him into the the kingdom of Saul because of David's ability to play the harp, right? And at one point in uh, the story, we're told that Saul loved David greatly. They had this uh, love and appreciation for one another. But things didn't stay that way for the two of them. 
See, as David grew in prominence and in stature, as he became the Israelite champion who uh, slayed Goliath, the, the Philistine um, champion, right? He's, he's uh, the, the, the leader of Saul's army as he finds incredible success. As he grows in prominence, Saul becomes increasingly uh, insecure and jealous. Saul was a, a very insecure king. And and Saul completely snaps the day that he hears a bunch of women coming to him and they, they sing this song to him that says this. It says, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And at that point, it's just, it's just over for Saul. He wanted David dead and he did everything at that point to see him gone. He did everything from sending him out to face hundreds of Philistines with the hope that he would be killed... Uh, he, he had people sent to David's house at night, uh, watching him overnight with the hopes that they would murder him in the morning. Uh, Saul literally threw spears at, at David, uh, plunging him into the walls, right? And Saul was uh, David's father-in-law. David married Michal. Uh, so you think your father-in-law is bad? He probably hasn't taken a spear and shoved you up into a wall, right? He plots with his good friend, Jonathan, his son, and seeks to execute David's demise. And so David is on the run. He runs. He runs from his home. He runs from Ramah. He runs from Nob. He runs from Gath. And there's literally nowhere left for him to go. And it's in that context, in Psalm 142, that David is at his last resort, and he's, he's in the cave. That's where we find him. He's been hunted by his father-in-law. He's been betrayed by his wife. He has uh, had to leave his good friend Jonathan. And uh, he has literally nothing and no one. Every resource that he has is, has been exhausted. And it's in this place of greatest need that David turns to God. And he learns the hard but necessary lesson that you and I have to learn time and time again. You don't really know that God is all you need until you know that God is all you have. Right? And the first thing that David does, and the, the first thing that this psalm forces us to see and exhorts us to do in our own moments of aloneness and despair, is first to honestly pour out our pain and complain to God. We need to honestly pour out our pain and complain to God. C.S. Lewis, he once wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, that pain insists upon being attended to. That God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. And that's exactly what's happening to David. Right? As his pain increases, he's becoming uh, more and more awakened to his tremendous need for God. Look at it there in the text. He says, I cry, I plead, I pour out my complaint, I tell my trouble to God. When I'm feeling as if my, my spirit is fainting, I, I look around, I look to my left, I look to my right, and there's, there's nowhere left for me to go, there's no person there, I have no friend here, and his conclusion to all of this is nobody cares for me. No one cares for my soul. Right? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt as if nobody cared for you? I felt that way. And while the exhortation for us to pour out our pain may seem to be fairly simple, I actually believe that for a lot of us, that idea is, is really, really hard. 
See, we live in a setting most of the time where we, as, as Lewis said, are content to, to listen to God in our pleasures. We, we listen to him whisper. But we don't really hear him out of pain, right? We avoid that feeling of desperation because it's so alarming. And yet, when we fail to lean into God in it, I think we, we miss out on a great deal of intimacy with him. And as I was thinking about this, my mind retracted back to um, about six or seven months ago when Catherine and I were in a really, really bad car accident. Uh, we were traveling up I-75 North, uh, right there in Florence, by the Florence Yall Tower. And uh, we, were, we were hit from behind by an SUV at about 80 miles an hour. And it spun our, our little Toyota Corolla around twice. And we hit headfirst into a guardrail and we were turned facing oncoming traffic. And from the moment that that car hit us until our car stopped, it was complete and utter chaos in that car. I mean, it was panic. And although I had my hands on that steering wheel, I had no control. I had no control over my life. I had no control over her life. And all I could think as we're tossing and turning and tumbling is, what is going to happen when this car stops? What are we going to look like when this all comes to its end? And as I looked over at my wife, like all she could say in that moment was Jesus, Jesus. And sometimes I think it's in those moments where we are most desperate, where all we can get out is maybe a phrase, help, please, no, maybe it's a sigh. I think it's in those moments of of desperation That God is actually doing a a tremendous work in us. That those cries don't show a lacking of faith, but often those are the most appropriate kinds of prayers that show tremendous growth in faith, right? A lot of times we think we have to dress our prayers up, that we need to say the right things, and sometimes all we need to do is just be honest, honest with what's going on. And I say this because what's embedded in David's prayer is this acknowledgement of God from David in the depths, right? He says in verse 3, he says, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. See, God knew right where David was, and he knows where you are as well. And if you think about that, that that idea that God knows right where you are, it kind of leads us in the direction to ask the question that so many have asked throughout uh, the history of humanity, and it goes something along these lines. If God really knows my way, if he knows where I'm at, is there any real purpose in pain? Like if he really is sovereign and in control, how do I how do I remedy that? How would I how do I make that understand my understanding of God's goodness? How do I how do I bring those two things together? Is there really any purpose in all of this? And for David, the answer to that question is yes. And for you and I, for those of us who are in Christ, I believe the answer is yes as well. You see, uh, Psalm 57 is a parallel psalm to Psalm 142. It's the same background, same, same thing going on. David's in the cave. He's running from Saul. He's alone. And in Psalm 57, verse 2, he says this. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. Even in that place, David had a confidence that God was was bringing about a particular purpose in his life. He knew, right? Psalm 89 tells us that uh, God's faithfulness and his steadfast love would be with David wherever he went. 
and that in his name, his horn would be exalted. Meaning that that initial anointing from Samuel, of saying, you will be the king in Israel, it would come to pass. But ultimately, the way that David was going to get there, the way that he was going to learn that, was going to be in his own uh, desperation, in his lowness, he was going to learn that, that God was sufficient to bring those things about. And that ultimately, when he would rise to prominence, it would happen because God was glorious. Because God was the, the, the praiseworthy one. And while you and I don't have uh, that kind of a promise, nobody in here is, is a nation, is, a, is promised to be a, a leader of a nation, right? We know, right, Romans 8. I think this is a, an important verse that we should kind of etch into our hearts. We need to, we need to know this deeply. Romans 8.28 says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For good. For good. And what is the ultimate good? Is what you say is good? Is it what I think is good? Is it, is it what any of us think is, is good? Right? Ultimately, what, what God declares to be good is this. It's what he says in verse 29, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And so what that means is that in that moment where, where things are completely out of control and you just can't understand what's, what's happening or process through what's, what's going on, you can know that God is working for his ultimate joy, for his ultimate glory, and for your ultimate joy as well. Right? He's, he's for us. He's not there to, to destroy us, but he's there to make us, to make us into the likeness of Jesus. His promise is that when he starts this work in us, that he will complete this good work within us. But here's the thing. Just because we know those things to be true... It doesn't mean that we kind of soft-pedal the hurt. Because let's just be totally honest, right? When we, put those, when we put those things on the table, when we kind of put that blanket over whatever circumstance that we're in, does, does it really diminish the pain? Does it make it feel like any, any better? Because sometimes it, it, all we need to do and what we need to see out of this psalm is that we need to be encouraged in, in what David does in verse 2 to complain. Right, what, a, what a radical thing to say, to complain. Now, before you tune me out, let me, let me acknowledge that I realize the Bible says, right, Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling. Not to grumble, we shouldn't complain, we shouldn't dispute. But I think that the kind of complaining that uh, David is encouraging out of this psalm is that we would do two things simultaneously. That we would be honest, that we would not back down from what's going on, but that we would also, with that, hold uh, with it God's sovereignty and his goodness and his care. Right? And that creates within us a posture. A posture that ultimately says, God, I trust you. Right? The rightful response is, is not to accuse God of evil. It's not to kind of stand over him and put God in contempt. It's not to think about your circumstance and say, well, if I were God, I think I would actually make a better one. But it's, it's to say, God, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything that I'm going through, but I'm going to acknowledge, right, the fact that, the fact that I'm single and I desire to be married, man, it, it is a burden that I carry every day. But I trust you. Right, the fact that my boss just betrayed me and I've just found myself in unemployment, and it, it just seems like so 
unfathomable at this moment. I, I don't see how this is good. You say, I acknowledge that you are good. It's to say that the fact that someone dear to me has, has just died and I know that I'm going to carry that kind of void in my heart probably for the rest of my life. Right? It's probably not going to change on this side of glory. But I say I'd, I'd follow you even through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a way of being sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Giving praise and thanksgiving right in the, in the middle of abandonment and pain and loss. And this is why it's so important that we think rightly about God. I I tell our students all the time, I share this quote, uh, A.W. Tozer once wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But why is that the most important thing about us? So we can just kind of walk around with our giant theological heads and just, you know, be this this, uh, answer man and I can give every answer that you need about the, the Christian faith. No, it's so that when the lights go out in life, we can stand in faith knowing that it's not just random things happening to us, but that God is with us, producing a deepening trust in him in the middle of it. And this is why it's so important that we think and we speak the reality of who God is over our lives. Look at what David says in in verse 5. He says, I say... Now, if you're a, if you're a note taker or if you're a, an underliner, go ahead and just highlight that right there. He says, I say, because really that's kind of the, it's the linchpin in the entirety of the psalm, right? The, the prayer is about to change where David is going to take his, his loneliness and he's going to begin to see it through the lens of God. Because what that word means in the Hebrew, the, the term I say, uh, it means to think, to call, to declare, or to proclaim, See, David had to think and physically say out loud what was true of God in the moment of his despair. He had to fill and steep his mind with spiritual realities, opening the soil of his soul and letting God's uh, word seep in deeply. He had to take himself by the collar and address himself, not allowing his feelings to override him, not allowing the the chaos to come in, but to remind himself that God was real in that moment, that God uh, had done certain things in the past, he had promised things in the past, and he had pledged himself to do certain things in the future. He had to come back to who he knew God to be. And you and I are the same way all the time, right? Like some of of us, we, we wake up in the morning with like a million different thoughts, and some of us, we do this. We literally do this. We get in our car and we, we talk to ourselves out loud. Right? Nobody wants to admit that, but we do those things. We talk to ourselves out loud in the car. We sit at our desks at work and we kind of analyze and we process and we comb through with that fine-tooth comb, everything going on in our lives. But the problem is, is, is that we often do that without, without bringing God into the equation. Who is God? What is God? What has he done? What has he promised to be? And what we need to do is what I'm going to call a a cool runnings moment. Cool runnings moment. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Cool Runnings, but it's about 25 years old. came out in 93. It's a good one. It's on Netflix, so when you go home, you can catch it. Um, But in the movie... Um, it tells the story about uh, this group of guys from Jamaica, and they want to qualify for the Olympic Games, right? They're, they're going to be this Jamaican bobsledding team. The only problem is, is when you think of bobsledding, 
You typically don't think of Jamaica, right? And so as they try to qualify, they're, they're kind of this embarrassment, and they, you know, they don't fit in, and they're incredibly discouraged. And there's this one scene in particular where this character, Junior Bevins, he's feeling uh, really low, and they're in this bar with his, he's in this bar with his teammate, uh, Yule Brenner, and he takes him into the bathroom, and, and this is what he says to him. He says, I want you to look yourself in the mirror and tell me what you see. Tell me what you see, Junior. And Junior, he's kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's down, and he, all he can say is, I, I see Junior. And he says, you see Junior, right? And then in his very Jamaican accent, he says, you want, you want to know what I see? He says, I see pride, and I see power, and I see a bad man who won't take it from nobody. And he tells Junior, I want you to look in the mirror and say it. He says, I see pride, and I see power, and I see a bad man who won't take it from nobody. Again, say it. I see pride. I see power. I see a bad man who won't take it from nobody. And all of a sudden, right, Junior's disposition has gone from no confidence at all, and yet when he walks out of that bathroom, he's going, I'm Junior Bevins, right? I know exactly who I am. And in the same way, you and I often need to look ourselves in the mirror. We need to pull ourselves by the collar and say to ourselves, not how great we are, right? But how great God is and how big God is and and who God is and what he's promised and pledged himself to be. And what has he pledged himself to be for us? Look at what David says in verse 5. He says, I say you are my refuge, right? You are my refuge, And this idea of a refuge, it needs to be more than just some kind of sentimental thing for us. I think a lot of times we take these, you know, uh, these ideas from the Bible and we kind of, you know, put them as our desktop screensaver when we open open our computer, right? That's a that's a nice thing, but but what does that really mean? What David says when he says that God is his refuge is he's saying that when his world is completely out of control, right? When when he can't understand it, that he can ultimately hide. In God. That when all he can see is destruction, that he knows that God is his protection and shield. It's taking the words of Jesus when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And saying, yeah, I'm going to rest in Jesus. It's a, it's a posturing of the heart. That doesn't mean that bad things never happen to us. But it means that we take confidence. We can confidently look at God, and when our heart breaks, we can hide under the shadow of his wings. And the heart question to know if this is true of you is to, to ask yourself when troubles come, right, when that abandonment comes into play, when betrayal comes into play, when you're feeling alone, what do you believe can ultimately protect you? What do you feel safe in? Is it God, or is it some kind of false refuge, right? And that can be a number of things. That could be, that could be uh, comfort, that could be entertainment, that could be uh, a relationship, that could be your spouse. Like, it could be anything, but what do you ultimately feel safe in? And that's not the only thing that God is for David here. He says also that uh, you are my portion in the land of the living, right? What does that mean? Portion in the land of the living. Essentially, in this phrase, uh, he's saying that God is his ultimate reward, right? God is my treasure. He is the, the treasure above all treasures. 
and that no matter what came into his life, right, whether it was him being in Saul's good graces when uh, we read that uh, Saul loved David greatly, and even when he had the nation of Israel singing his, his praise when it seemed as if the whole world was, was backing him, and then even in that moment where he had nothing, where there was nowhere left to run, there was nothing but the darkness, he had nothing but his cries, he, he realized that, God, you are the objective, soul-satisfying reality of my life, and you transcend all of it. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Right, when life knocks you down and it pins you into the corner, is God enough for you? Right, some of you are, are parents in the room. You have young children. You have teenagers. Right, when that teenager like, just does something incredibly wrong and just seems to, to do you wrong and you're just outraged and you can't understand and you're feeling just, how could, how could you do that? Is God a, a, enough for you? Is he enough? Right, single person, like, I, I get this, like, when the ending of a, of a dating relationship happens and, man, you thought that you were going to, to get married and, and literally that breakup happens and there's, there's nothing you can do. Like, you try everything that you can and it's just, it's done, is God still the greatest love of your life? Does delight in God transcend all of those things? See, one of the most popular and probably uh, some of the only verses that people know in the book of Lamentations comes in, in chapter 3 and verses 22 to 23. And this is what it says. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, right? We sing that, we rehearse it, but it's, it's the next verse that most people don't know. Verse 24, and it, it says this. The Lord is my portion. Same Hebrew word. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. I will hope in him. And that's why it's important that we're not, just these, we're not just these big theological heads. We're not just people that know a lot about God. But we take what's true of God, we harness it, we make it our own, we internalize it, and then we bend it out and we begin to, to see the world differently. Right? We put it into practice and, and, and everything begins to change. Right? The world looks different, uh, the workplace looks different, my house looks different, my family looks different, everything looks different, but nothing has changed, Right? But my perspective has changed because I know who God is. And that's where true knowledge of God should lead us. It should lead us into these truths that, that begin to, to work themselves out in us as we inflate our, our confidence in God and we deflate our view in ourselves. Right? And, it, and it causes our hope and faith to deepen as we rehearse him often. Right, look at what David does in verses 6 through 7. He says, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I might give thanks to your name. Right, this is the first time that supplication has entered into this prayer. It's the first time that David is asking God to do something for him. And just the sheer fact that he's coming to him in prayer and he's, he's asking anything demonstrates a, a real confidence in God. 
Because essentially what he's saying is that you, only you can do these things, right? I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not able enough. I'm, I'm not enough for all of this. I can't deliver myself. I can't bring myself out of the bondage that I find myself in. Right? That's, a, that's an interesting place to be. I think that's why Jesus said things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What a weird thing to say. Right? I think this. I think that, I think that proud, self-sufficient people typically don't pray all that much. Right? But, but poor and desperate and pain-inflicted people, they often pray all the time. Right? And hasn't that, that, hasn't that been experientially the case for you? Like, typically when people say, I came to faith in Jesus, or I I grew exponentially in my faith, it happened not when the world was rainbows and lollipops and everything just made sense to me, right? It's it's usually when the lights went out, when when life got hard, when, when things happened that I couldn't understand. It's typically when people are knocked down and seemingly buried, feeling incredibly small and weak. And and from that place of lowness, they begin to look at God and see that he is mighty and that he is able to save, right? That's, That's what's happening from that place. And this idea of cultivating, you know, an inflated view of God and a deflated view of yourself, it's it's so counterintuitive. It's so contrary to our own intuitions. Because we live in a world that is constantly discipling and telling us that we should, we should live as if we're big and that God is small. That you should trust your, yourself, your own talents, your own giftings, your own abilities, your own resources, your own ability to get things done. And to not bank on God because chances are he's probably not even real. But the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God says something completely different. It's completely upside down. It says it's actually better for you to be small rather than big. It's actually better for you to be weak rather than strong. Because it's the misfits, it's the outcasts, it's the people who just can't seem to figure life out who will one day rule and reign over all the earth with King Jesus. That's who's going to be there. And it's not going to be people who made themselves, who pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, who have an answer for every question and so one of the most loving things that God can, can do for us is to teach us time and time again to agree with the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he said, it was good for me that I was brought low. It was good for me that I was brought low. Not that I liked it, not that I preferred it, not that I wanted it, not that I had it figured out, but it was in that place where I most sensed the reality of God in my life. It was the, it was the place where I really saw that he is good and that he is sweet And what David is asking is that ultimately God would be his deliverer. Deliver me. And this this request is aimed at the praise, not of himself, but he wants God to be given thanks. And this is a good and right posture in prayer. You want to know if you're asking the right things in prayer? Ask yourself these questions. Am I asking this so that God would be seen as great and glorious? Or am I asking this for my own personal benefit? And sometimes we don't even, we don't even know like, the difference in those two things. We don't even know ourselves well enough to, to know that. But, 
But another thing that we can ask is, is this. If, if God said no to the thing that I was asking for, would I still call him good? Would I still call him good? That's what David does. See, while his request demonstrates great confidence in God, the, the prayer culminates with him beginning to speak definitively. These things will happen. Look at what he says. He says, The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. He's not asking anymore. He's speaking. And he's saying essentially that at the end of all of this, the end of all of this, God, you are going to do exactly what you purposed. At the end of all of this, you will do what is bountiful, meaning that you will do what is right and what is good. And doesn't this kind of crying and trust remind us of someone else? Doesn't this remind you of the one who in anguish said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done? Robert Godfrey, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary, he's, he said this of the psalm. He says, David's history is our history. Jesus is David's greater son, and what's true of David is true of Jesus. As David speaks the psalm, so Jesus speaks the psalms. And so in a wider sense, it's, it's Jesus, the descendant of David, who in sorrows deeper than the cave poured out his complaint through sweats of blood, crying to God, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. Right, Jesus, the eternal king, was abandoned and he was betrayed and left alone. Jesus, the greater David, was cut off from God at the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the forsaken one. And so that those of us who hope in him know that we never can be. See, what Jesus accomplished at the cross ensures us that no matter how deafening that silence may feel, no matter how dark the abandonment may seem that nothing this world could ever throw at us could truly separate us from him. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, and no height, and no depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you know that? Don't you need to hear that again and again? That there's no depth in the world, not even death itself, could separate you from Jesus. And I think the appropriate response in this is that we give thanks for a Savior who is also a friend. Right? Jesus said in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Right? Jesus is a friend for sinners who doesn't run from us in our darkness and despair, but he moves and he meets us in the midst of it. And so to kind of wrap all this up, to kind of put a bow on it and hopefully kind of drive this home for you, uh, I want to tell you a story. So as you know, the Psalms have been called the songbook of Israel. And some of the greatest songs of praise that the Psalms give us are birthed out of a tremendous uh, uh, pain and, and hurt, right? And it's no different in many songs that have been sung throughout the history of the church. And one such song came from a man named John Chapman who, uh, when he was 22 years old in 1881, was an aspiring Presbyterian minister who lived in Cincinnati, Ohio with what he hoped to be a bright future ahead of him. 
He was engaged to a woman named Irene, and uh, together they believed that God would take them throughout the world where they would spend their lives working as ministers of the gospel. But God had a different plan for John, and after four years of marriage, one month after the birth of his first child, Irene died. And she left John alone at 26 years old to be a single father. And if that heartache was not enough, two years later, at 28, John married a woman named Agnes. And together they gave birth to a little boy named Robert. And John, who had to have thought that the worst was behind him, uh, was dealt another striking blow when Robert died early on in his infancy. You fast forward a couple of decades, three more kids. In 1907, John found himself in an all-too-familiar place. After serving Jesus as a pastor for the bulk of his ministry in New York City, he watched his wife Agnes die, and in that all-too-familiar place, right at the age uh, of, of not even 50, he's in his 40s, he had watched two wives and a child go to their grave. And instead of allowing bitterness and darkness, and, and the pain to overwhelm him, and to consume him, right, John looked at God. He looked Godward. And in all of his heartache, when it must have felt as if the whole world and even God had forgotten him, John wrote these words. This is what he said. He said, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Jesus, what a help in sorrows while the billows o'er me roll. Even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, helps my soul. Jesus, I do now receive him more than all in him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness and I am his and he is mine. And so in that same way, in that same place of loneliness and despair, let us remember that God is sufficient in himself to provide all that we need. That he's demonstrated that he uh, uh, cares in his invitation for us to pour out our hearts to him, to complain to him. He's demonstrated it in that he is a, is a refuge and, and our portion, and that we can rehearse him often, and he's shown it in his ability to deliver us to deepen our confidence and trust in him, right? Let's pray together. Father, when we pray in Jesus Christ, we can know that there is nothing in creation, there's no height, there's no depth, no pain. God could ever separate us from him. And so God, help us to remember, God, in our own moments of pain and anguish, um, who you are, that you are a refuge, you are a place for us to hide, and you are a place for us to, to run to when the world seems as, as if it's in utter disarray, God. Help us to know these truths and to, to work them into our hearts in such a way that we truly believe them and that we would live, live in light of them, confidently looking to you uh, in full trust, God. Help us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.